Hello and welcome to the Truth About Cars podcast. This week we've got quite the lineup for you, including special guest Carl Brower of iccars.com to talk about which cars are the best used cars for the money. We also have Chris Tun, uh, one of our TTAC car reviewers as well. Again, that's ttac.com, the truth about cars.com. Before we, get, before we get into the meat of that and talk about the study, uh, we'll also chat about what automakers we miss the most while in the news we'll be covering Boss's brand new crossover, as well as the fact that one automaker may be rethinking its ambitious EV goals. Meanwhile, we have news that one state is looking to make speeding not just illegal, but impossible. Can you guess which one? On top of that, in our What We Use segment, Matthew Guy is going to tell us all about a new tool that will change the way you wash your car. The Truth About Cars podcast is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber and not cash. Keep your ride alive. Keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. So, Carl, welcome in. Uh, can you bring us up to speed on the study about the best used cars for the money that you guys performed over at IC Cars? Absolutely, happy to do so. Uh, we we looked at uh, a lot of cars, uh, something like uh, uh, 1.8 million, I believe to get a sense of which used cars are the best ones for the money. And what we looked at specifically was the lifespan of the car versus the price you pay. Um, so really it's, it's pretty simple math when you think about it. If, if you're gonna spend a given amount on a car and get a given amount of lifespan left, left after you buy it as a used car, you'd like to spend the least and get the most on the lifespan. And as an example, uh, a uh, tracks and we looked at five-year-old used cars so a chevy tracks uh, as a five-year-old car you would buy on average for around seventeen thousand two hundred and seventy-four dollars and you'd have one hundred and twenty thousand miles of life left for that kind of money um and and doing that gave us our ten thousand cost per ten thousand miles so the, the tracks and that's what we rank the cars by so the tracks for instance for if you buy it at seventeen two seven four and you get 119,833 miles out of it, your price per 10,000 miles is $1,442 per 10,000 miles of lifespan left on it. And that was number one. And then we just ranked them according to that 10,000 mile cost. I find it kind of curious that the Trax is the is the one that you found as the best five-year-old used car for the money because the new Trax is actually really nice. I, I really enjoyed driving it, but the old Trax was kind of a penalty box. And you know, are people just prioritizing money and cost over over luxury features and, and driving fun and all sort of thing? Or why is the tracks the, the, the vehicle that's being picked here? It's the cost. You know, it's funny because we did the same thing for the new cars. And the new car that, that came up the best is one that most people, certainly probably people listening to your podcast or savvy automotive people wouldn't want, which is was a, a Mitsubishi uh, Mirage. <laughs> and again, what this is, is this is the market value for these cars versus the lifespan left on them, whether it's a brand new Mitsubishi Mirage or a five-year-old Chevrolet Trax. So in this case, it actually helps when the cars don't have a lot of market appeal because that makes them less expensive. But if mm-hmm. they still have mechanical, you know, but if they have mechanical durability, you don't cost a lot to buy and you have mechanical durability to last a while, then from a strictly for the money, I'm, I'm not looking for the best car. I'm looking for the best car for my money. And if best is defined by the longest life I can get out of the lowest amount of cost I spend, that's where a Chevy Trax as a used car or a Mirage as a new car. And and it's interesting because the next one down from number one is the Honda Fit. Now, much more desirable car by most people's standards. And it's $19,049 instead of $17,274. So, and its lifespan is 129, 129,319 miles. So it's got almost 10,000 more miles of lifespan than the tracks. Not surprising probably to most people given it's a Honda versus a Chevy, but it costs you a chunk more money. It costs you uh, $1,800 more. So in this, in this area, it would be a good way for consumers to say, I'm going to spend the extra 1,800 and get out of what you're calling the penalty box of the tracks to get the extra 10,000 miles of life and the experience of driving the fit versus the, the tracks. 
it is it's interesting that you mentioned reliability because looking at the other the other three cars the best 10 year old car the best five-year-old used truck and the best 10-year-old used suv we have two hondas and a toyota really not shocking at all right just for those oh go ahead carl go ahead well, I was just going to say, yeah, the, you know, it's it, it's pretty much like standard procedure. Whenever we do these kind of studies, what you basically find is you're going to pay more for the Japanese cars when you're looking for long lifespan, but you're going to get more lifespan. And so what it comes down to is how much more are you paying and how much more lifespan are you getting? And is that worth the difference from you? Or would you rather go with a cheaper, less desirable and not quite as long a lifespan? And depending on how you cut the data, that's how it, they'll rank. Yeah, and just scrolling through the entire list, I'm seeing a lot of familiar names: Civic, Camry, Honda Pilot. Uh, and for those of you who didn't, who haven't read the study, the, the the other vehicles I referenced just a minute ago were the Toyota Avalon is the best ten year old used car for the money, Honda Ridgeline is the best five year old used truck, and the Honda CRV is the best ten year old SUV for the money. And it's actually kind of funny that we're having discussing this topic because over the past weekend, a friend of mine from college called me up looking for a used car and he was looking for either a small SUV or a fuel efficient sedan. So we tossed about the usual names, Civic, Accord, Corolla, Camry, uh, HR, Honda HRV, Toyota RAV4, Honda CRV. It's just amazing how these cars hold up over time. It really is. And this is the, this is the bright spot in an otherwise kind of dark new and used car world when you think of pricing, right? We all know that pricing has completely spiked in the last five years. It's not like cars were cheap before COVID, but COVID just uh, ramped up everything because of the supply chain issues and the limited availability. You you had demand drop, uh, sorry, you had supply drop during COVID and then demand, honestly, it went up a little because a lot of people realized they didn't have to work in an office anymore. A lot of them moved away from an urban environment, but then they needed a car because they now didn't Mm -hmm. live in they didn't live in New York using subways. They lived, you know, in Connecticut or somewhere further away and they needed a car. So it was a nasty confluence of circumstances that sent new and used car prices skyrocketing, painful for people who wanted to go buy a car and were like, wait a second, I, what, what does 15,000 get me today versus two years ago? What the heck happened? The good news in all of this is what we're talking about here is that you have cars that are just simply better engineered and more durable in the last 20 years. And you're getting, you know, cars that, we used to think, oh, that's a hundred thousand mile car. Pretty much throwaway time now. Now it's like, uh, no, you got to go to like one fifty or two hundred thousand before you get to that same status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I'm actually glad you brought that up. That's going to be my next question. Is as we look through this study, uh, you know, what what are you seeing in general? Just kind of just in general, going away from the specific study, what are you seeing in terms of people? buying used cars over new in, in terms of people who want to buy a new car and then just look at stick, look at the sticker prices and are getting sticker shock and can't afford a $45,000 or $50,000 new car, but can go back and buy a two, three, four, five year old, uh, Accord, Camry, whatever. Are you seeing people just kind of getting sticker shock and moving to the used car market to save money? Is that, is that kind of how it's going right now? A hundred percent. Yeah. What we're seeing really is, uh, people are switching from, new to used that used to buy new that now they're buying a used car they're buying out their lease vehicles and honestly that was a really smart thing to do uh it might not be quite as smart soon because we're getting to where we're past the three-year time frame where cars were already expensive but you know when when leases were coming to an end in 21 and 22 and 20 to 23 and the lease buyout price had been written before the covid uh, situation and the spike in prices you could buy your lease at your buyout price for a lot cheaper than that car's current market value was at the time. And we were telling people, if you got a lease with a buyout price that you can confirm is much lower than the current market value of that car, you should buy it and either sell it yourself or keep it because you're seeing what the new car prices are. So switching from new to used, buying out leases, or uh, making your used car that you've already owned last longer, maintaining it so that it'll keep going. Uh, those are kind of the trends. And and if we go back a little bit real quick, I can throw a couple other interesting stats at you because Absolutely. what we did, yeah, what we did is we looked at car pricing uh, over the course of, uh, I think it was a three-year uh, study or four-year study. Yeah, it was a four-year study of u- used cars and the price had gone up 47.7% since the pandemic had started. So 
used car prices wow. under $20,000 made up 49.3% of the market in 2019. And this was back in August. And in August, they made up 12.4% of the market in, 20, in, in uh, August of 23. So in a four-year period, if you had $20,000 to buy a used car, you went from having access to 49.3% of the used car market to 12.4% of the used car market. Uh, so that was pretty painful. You just couldn't get as much car. And, and what you did get had much more miles too. So uh, I'm trying to see if I can find some of the really interesting things like, like, like a Ram 1500. The average price in 2019 was 27,324. The average price in 2023, these were used, was 42,881. That was like the most extreme price increase. It, price changed for a used Ram by 56.9%. That's how much it went up. That's insane. Do you see, do you foresee uh, uh, any changes coming anytime soon? I, I don't think automakers are going to drop sticker prices anytime soon, but do you, do you think there will be any changes? Will there will it be people can maybe afford more or, or maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe prices will come down on the new car side, or do you think it's going to be kind of like this for some time where new cars are out of reach, out of, excuse me, new cars are out of reach for most people and most people are going to be stuck buying one or two years old. Um, so you have a couple forces in play and, and that's why it's very interesting because it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. But the, the big, one of the big forces is a lack of supply for three years of new cars, which forced the remaining new cars that were produced and the used cars all to go up in value because people couldn't buy a new car. So they just bought the used car that they, that they could find on the lot. And that drove up prices of both types of cars. And that built up for like three years. Now, that all ended, give or take, let's say 2023, start of 23. So we're like a year into what I would call mostly normal new car supply. But if you have, it's like picture a dam that you've shut off uh, the water flow for and you build up a level behind the dam. When you pull that lever and let the same level of water flow again, it's flowing, but that level behind the dam is still highly elevated. And it's going to take a while for it to get back to the normal level that it was at. That's where we're at right now. We've got new car production flowing at pretty much a normal rate, but we have three years to catch up on. So that is going to hold prices high on new and used cars for that, for that reason. However, the other flip side would be uh, the demand side. And if you start to see demand fall, just as you're seeing supply come back to normal, and demand might fall because interest rates have gone up maybe and inflation has mm -hmm. gone up maybe mm -hmm. and uh, unemployment and layoffs and given uh, uh, fields like a lot of tech fields and stuff have come down, you know, you're, you've lost a lot of employment there. That is a macroeconomic factor that could start to push back against those high prices on the demand side. And so you've got those kind of two variables in play, uh, you know, we're releasing pressure and the buildup of lack of new car supply but we're also starting to release pressure in the demand side. And both of those would push prices down. And I personally feel like it's already happening. I feel like we're on the cusp of starting to see a whipsaw effect where all of a sudden there's a lot of incentives. There already are more incentives, but we just start seeing a real spike in incentives from new car dealers trying to get rid of new cars that aren't selling and prices, transaction prices start to come down. MSRP will probably not, drop they're not going to like take ten thousand dollars off what they want for a car but the transaction price people are actually paying to get the car off a lot could could start to drop quickly excellent um carl i wanted to ask you real quick before we talk about uh speaking new production i want to talk about mouse's new crossover but before we do that i want to see if you if you have any other things you'd like to add regarding the study uh, you know just that that people should probably reconsider their standards for what they were, what they'll pay and what kind of mileage they'll deal with. Um, you can find deals out there now. First of all, what I would say is you can find deals. It used to be hard to find a deal new or used. Now there are definitely deals out there. They're not everywhere. Prices are still relatively high compared to pre-pandemic, but there's now like pockets of deals depending on the model and the make and the year and stuff. So that's my first thing is do your due diligence. You might be surprised what you can find. If you're looking at a car and you're not happy with its pricing, look at direct competitors. Maybe there's an oversupply in your area of a given model and you can actually get it for much cheaper than the original model you were considering. Um, so that's that. And then I would just say that again, if you can wait 
to buy a vehicle, new or used, if you have the ability to maintain your current vehicle at a relatively low cost, you know, you're not looking at an engine or a transmission replacement, but maybe you have to do like some front end work or something, or it needs new tires, and you were thinking maybe just to sell it instead of doing that maintenance work. Probably in six months, there are more forces to push prices down on cars than up. So if you can wait three months, six months, 12 months, you probably only will do better on a newer used car purchase. That's good to hear for anyone who's in the market. Speaking of being in the market, and I'd, I'd like to get Chris Tun's opinion on this too as well. So last week, I flew out to New York City to see the new Mazda CX-70, and we did not get to drive it just yet. So there's, that'll be later this year. But uh, I wanted to talk to you guys. I think both of you have probably driven the CX-90. I know I have. So the CX-70, for those who don't know, is essentially the Mazda CX-90 with one less seating row. It's the same size. I actually wrote my article. It was smaller because it was a brain cramp on my part. It does look a little smaller, but it actually is not. It is, so I had to go back and fix that error. Uh, but it is it's the same size as the, C, as the CX-90. It uses two of the same engines. Uh, I don't think it has the base the base six-cylinder, but it does have either a plug-in hybrid version or or a gas six-cylinder setup. So there's been a little bit of a controversy this past week over what is Mazda doing. Is is this a smart move, just lopping the third row off the CX-90, which probably hasn't been a huge seller? I, Carl, you may have numbers on that that we don't. But I'd like to kind of just get your guys' opinion on, you know, is Mazda going to be competitive with the CX-70, or is it just kind of a cynical exercise in, oh, let's just change the styling a little bit and, and, and lop a row off? So, uh, Carl, Chris, either one of you want to get started? Well, the Mazda CX-70 is an interesting case because it, yeah, it is basically the same size as the CX-90. Uh, it's a, I think the hubbub is more about branding than the actual vehicle itself. If Mazda had done what uh, Volkswagen is doing with the Atlas and Atlas Cross Sport, those two vehicles, there's the Atlas Cross Sport is a two-row crossover, Atlas is a three-row, that are essentially the same vehicle the they have the same 117 inch wheelbase i I had to look it up and i don't think there would be as much concern about it but since they are branding it with a completely different model name i think that's a little confusing for a lot of uh, for a lot of people that are looking on to what's going on uh, it's also maybe along the lines that they could have made it a CX-85 or or a CX-90 Sport. Uh, the CX-85, I'm thinking from you know how Infinity has their Q6 or QX60, and then a QX55 is their so-called coupe version because it's got a slanted rear hatch area uh, version of the same vehicle. Um, I'm sure it's going to be perfectly fine as a two-row crossover that is as competitive as the CX-90 is, but uh, especially with a plug-in hybrid being an option. But it's it's a strange branding exercise. Carl, what do you think? I don't know if you followed the CX-70 closely, but what do you think about how that vehicle is going to fit into uh, Mazda's lineup? Well, I agree uh, with what Chris said, and, and I think had they called it, yeah, the CX-90 Sport, I bet a lot of this discussion about why is it so similar to the CX-90 would be a non-issue. Um, so I think that's that's one thing. Now, it was interesting that Chris, you know, I think you mentioned maybe that the CX-90 didn't have quite the driving dynamics that you might have hoped for, given its Mazda branding and, and background. Um, so one thing they could do, and I would agree with you, I would think the CX-90 is not even by even by big three row SUV standards, it feels like it could be a little sportier to to live up to Mazda's reputation. Right. So one one opportunity would be to make the CX seventy more sporty. You know, make it have a substantial shift in driving dynamics, suspension tuning, and maybe steering ratio, something like that, to give it uh, a little bit of a distinction. the The other thing too to keep in mind, we talked about the you talked about the Volkswagen atlas versus atlas cross sport and then the passport versus the pilot the honda's still in the exact same exercise with the honda pilot and passport um so this is not new ground it's been done before uh and i always feel like mazda struggles to like define itself and have the appreciation and the sales that it should have it had good sales last year by the way the brand did pretty well last year but it feels feels like honda's got a history of producing relatively good or competitive cars with some real value to buy them 
and just not selling them. You know, the, the Mazda 6 sedan was a good example that just died on the vine, even though it was a great car, um, probably because of SUVs taking over. And mm -hmm. the, thing that help, the thing that helps Mazda though here is they have the plug-in hybrid as mentioned. And they have it on the CX-90 already. Now it'll have it on the CX-70. There is no plug-in hybrid of the Atlas or Atlas Crossport or the, or the Pilot or Pilot or the Passport uh, from Honda, the same two basic types of cars from those two brands. So here's a chance to distinguish itself. The, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, another two-row SUV, that's got plug-in hybrid tech, but most vehicles in that category still don't. And I feel like that's where a lot of the market is starting to head. We just heard GM reorient itself to going back toward plug-in hybrid vehicles. Um, so I think that's where the Mazda CX-70 and 90 actually have a chance to make some ground being at the kind of leading edge of maybe a shift in the market. A note on the hybrid. Uh, we just found out this morning that Ford, in their refresh of the Explorer, which is, again, a similarly sized vehicle, is abandoning the hybrid. They've gone away from <laughs> hybrid, and it's all, uh, they've yeah. got the Turbo 4 and the Turbo V6 as are the two options. Yet. I would also point out, too, just going back to Carl's point about the Grand, about the Grand Cherokee, is uh, the 4xe is a lot more expensive than what the CX-70 will probably cost. So there's there's also that. And True. the Grand Cherokee can do more off-road uh, than the CX-70. So that would be a little bit interesting to see if there's cross-shopping there or not. Probably not. So the CX-70 may have an advantage that, it, it, like Carl said, that there's just not much in that category that or that class that has a plug-in hybrid powertrain. Yeah, that's where I think maybe they've got a shot here because I do feel like there's going to be a shift that way. I think we're getting a sense that companies, various companies are realizing, hmm, this battery only vehicle, electric vehicle situation may not be as uh, effective or as quick of a transition as we thought. And we might have to back into it by going through the, you know, taking a slight path detour through plug-in hybrids before we get to the pure electric cars that we're looking at. Um, and actually, I think we were going to talk, isn't Porsche talking about that too, right? Yes, we will. In fact, we're going to talk Porsche in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to take a quick ad break. We're going to talk to Matthew Guy, T-Tech's product we use extraordinaire. So we'll be right back with that. Welcome back to the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Healy, and I'm managing editor, and I am here with Matthew Guy, who's kind of our stuff we use expert, meaning that Matthew uh, actually uses a lot of the products he, he writes about and talks about on, on our site, uh, as opposed to just ag aggregating reviews off Amazon. Matthew actually has a lot of experience with the products that we're talking about and that, that he has written about in our stuff we use segment, or stuff we use feature, I should say. So anyway, Matthew, uh, we're here to talk about foam cannons today. So first of all, how are you doing today, Matthew? Hey, doing pretty good, Tim. How about you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. So just like last week, this is a product I don't have a lot of personal experience with. So I was going to see if you could walk walk myself and those of us who have not used foam cannons much, first of all, through how walk us through how they work and, and what they do, and then you can go from there and talk about your favorites and any ones you'd like to avoid. Absolutely. And I mean, no matter which foam cannon the person choose, it, it you can think of it as a way to supercharge the suds that you're using to wash your car. And as gearheads, despite evidence to the contrary, we're convinced that a clean car runs better, right? <laughs> so uh, logically, we know it doesn't, but logic rarely figures into automotive decisions. So that's why I like these foam cannons. It really does. It supercharges the suds and it covers your car in what looks to be a really thick layer of shaving cream. And it's a great effect to behold. And it makes the neighbors think you know exactly what you're doing, even if it's the first time that you've, you know, used one of these foam cannons. Um, how they operate is there is, they are an attachment that would go onto the end of either a garden hose or preferably a pressure washer, just simply because there's a better flow rate of water from a pressure washer. And that attachment has a big plastic tub on the bottom. Generally measures about 32 fluid ounces. So it's not enormous, but you can think of it as a pretty big Pepsi um, hanging off the bottom of your uh, attachment for your foam cannon there. And the water goes into that, is mixed with air, and then is fired out the end of the attachment. 
and that's what creates the suds, and the constant flow of water keeps that flow of suds going onto your car. And once the foamy mixture is created in that 32-ounce container, uh, the cannon launches it forward into a thick stream on your car, and if you've got good soap, maybe we'll talk about that on another installment, the soap will attack and it'll dislodge the road grime. So oftentimes I don't even um, scrub the car afterwards. You know, I'll, I'll hose it down or with the pressure washer with clean water, then I'll put the uh, foam cannon product on it and then hose it off or pressure wash it off again without even touching the car. So that, I like it for that reason too, because it means I don't have to touch the paint on the car. Excellent, excellent. So now that we know the uh, sort of how they work, uh, can you walk us through, you know, a favorite or two? I don't know how many different makes and models or brands you've used, but can you walk us through one or two of, of your favorite foam cannons as well as uh, a couple you might, you know, want to avoid if you're a consumer looking to buy a new foam, foam cannon? Where would you spend your money and where would you kind of walk away from it? Well, there's some uh, bigger names out there, like Chemical Guys, for example. I've got familiarity with that foam cannon, and it works great. Um, one of the things that I really like about those big names is that the attachment points, particularly the attachment point for that 32-ounce um, container where the soap gets mixed up, um, is made of metal. And I find that to be very, very beneficial um, because the ones which are the cheaper ones, which are just all made of plastic, they have a tendency to crack and leak around there. And besides making a mess, it ruins the um, it ruins the uh, the closed environment uh, of that container. So you can imagine that you don't get quite as much of a foam from your foam cannon as you might desire. Um, there are some that um, can use hot water as well. So I mean, just you know, read the ads and read the box if you're in this, in, in a bricks and mortar store. Uh, if you're using hot water, make sure to get one um, a foam cannon that can that can handle that because that is a different thing. Um, and beyond that, I really like knowing that the end of the foam cannon from which the foam <laughs> comes out of can be adjusted. And, you know, if you're there, if you're in a bricks and mortar store, just, you know, pick it up, see if it's too heavy for you. Um, and that you can adjust because you can adjust that end in order to get like a big wide fan of foam or a little narrow, almost pencil of foam. So if that's important to you, um, try it out before you pick it up. And if not, just compare the pictures online to make sure you can adjust that nozzle at the end of the foam cannon. You've obviously already touched on a few of these things uh, in that last last segment there. But just as a general rule, taking aside any particular brands, if you were uh, shopping for a foam cannon, it's your first time, you know, you decided to invest in one in your house uh, or garage, what specific features are you really looking, really looking for? And again, I know you touched on a few of them, but is there anything else that we're missing? Yeah, I would look for a wide neck at the top. Um, that would allow you to add the soap and add the uh, um, detergents that you want to use. So you can do that pretty quickly. So look for a wide neck at the top of the bottle. And most importantly, look for metal fittings to make sure that you get a long life out of the investment that you just made. Great, Matt. Great, Matthew. Thank you very much. Uh, much appreciated. And we always appreciate your time on these segments. So thank you again for your time. And we'll talk to you next week about a different product. Maybe we'll talk about soap. Maybe we'll talk about car wash, other car wash needs. Maybe we'll talk about something completely different. So we'll be back again next week with stuff we use. And again, this is the Truth About Cars podcast. We thank Matthew Gaff for his time. And we'll be back after this. And we're back in the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the, the managing editor for Truth About Cars. We're here with iccars.com executive analyst Carl Brower and T-Tech contributor and car reviewer Chris Tun talking about all sorts of things in the world of automotive today. And also, we are brought to you by, of course, eBay Motors. So, Carl and Chris, would you like guys to spend a couple seconds here talking about a vehicle you had to fix up to keep running in the past? Yeah, I certainly have uh, that experience, and I'm a big, big supporter of that. If you look at my my current fleet, uh, family wide fleet, you know uh, we've got a '88 Firebird Formula 350 that my daughter drives. That's literally going to hit 100,000 miles in like probably today or tomorrow. 
Uh, and then my son's tooling around in a 165,000 mile uh, 2004 Chevy Malibu that I bought out of the Edmunds.com long-term fleet 20 plus years ago. And then uh, my car, that's my primary daily driver is a 2001 BMW 325CI convertible with it's going to hit 215,000 miles probably in the next like week or two. So I can certainly make a claim to the concept of maintaining your old cars, buying an old car at a great price and then putting money into it at a smart level and um, avoiding the cost of newer used cars or new cars. Chris, what about you? I believe you have a Miata. You keep running with using parts from places like eBay. Yeah, I've uh, I've had a Miata, a 1991 Mazda Miata since, uh, oh goodness, 2003, so 21 years. Uh, my wife and I drove it on our honeymoon from Ohio to Maine and back. Uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike was not pleasant uh, in a uh, in a lowered Miata with big uh, big roll bars and stiff springs because uh, I thought I was going to autocross the thing. Um, but yes, I've I've had to keep that thing running. We've long had the philosophy that my wife would have a relatively new vehicle that didn't need much work, uh, and I would you know, just again keep costs down, and I would drive something much less expensive until I you know, started driving press vehicles every week. Um, I remember all oh, 15 something years ago, uh, I had to take the new car on a long drive out of town and my wife drove my beater, which was a $300 Volvo 740. And it blew up on her, literally exploded uh, the engine halfway to work for her that day. And it co- of course coincided with me having to have a have hernia surgery. And the Miata was out of commission because it had been the winter, wasn't driving through the winter that at that time, and it needed a clutch. So three days after hernia surgery, I had to put a new clutch in the Miata and you know, bench press the transmission up into place with help, <laughs> thankfully, from a neighbor. I was going to um, say. <laughs> yes, I got help from a neighbor, thankfully. Uh, but I had to bench press this transmission up in a place three days after hernia surgery, and that was... Not pleasant, but you do what you do to get the work because if not, that you know, even the cheap car is going to go away when you can't pay to put gas in it. That's that's very true. I actually don't have a lot of experience with fixing up uh, old cars. I when I had my Fox Body Mustang back in college or high school and college, did a few things here and there, mostly minor stuff. But but for those of you who do wrench, eBay Motors is here for the ride. So that means with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber and not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we're back at the Truth About Cars podcast talking with Carl Brower, the executive editor, or excuse me, executive analyst at iccars.com, and Chris Tun, car reviewer extraordinaire for TTAC. And you can find us at ttac.com, it's ttac.com, or the truth about cars spelled out.com. And we are discussing what's going on in the world of automotive. One story we ran on TTAC earlier this week was Porsche has kind of come out saying that some of the EV goals that the brand has set and the governments have set are a little bit unrealistic. And I think this is going to be a recurring, a recurring theme. Uh, a lot of, over the past few years, a lot of automakers and some governments have been setting deadlines for moving further into electrification and having more EVs on the road. And it seems like the tech, especially the charging tech, just isn't all the way there. So, Carl, I wanted to see what you had to think about. What, excuse me, what you had to say about that, and Chris, you as well. Yeah, um, it's a, a dicey situation because you have multiple forces at play. And whether you want to talk about consumer uh, acceptance and and affordability, because electric cars are always more expensive than the equivalent non-electric car, or um, government regulation and kind of uh, assumptions or or, uh, requirements that have to be met. And then, of course, manufacturer profit levels and market share and the things that keep them from going out of business. Uh, and you, you, these things kind of all have to work together. And it seems like we're seeing a mismatch here that the government is making demands and requirements that both the manufacturers are going to struggle to hit in terms of the technological capabilities and pricing that is acceptable to the consumer. 
and the consumer may not be as interested because of pricing and other reasons in in um, embracing electric vehicles as quickly as the government wants them to. So uh, I agree with what you said, Tim. I think we're seeing a trend here. We've heard from General Motors recently. We keep hearing uh, about increasingly in the last just like couple months, uh, and we're seeing it in the data at, at uh, IC cars. You know, certain types of vehicles, usually ones with batteries only powering them, piling up on dealer lots, not selling. Uh, you know, cut cut uh, shifts at uh, Ford F one fifty Lightning plants being cut down because they can't sell as many cars and produce. They don't want to produce them because they aren't moving them. So. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's a trend, and uh, this kind of goes to the trend of the PHEV thing I was talking about with Mazda. That might be the smarter path to take in the near term. I, I agree with that too. I think P, I think PHEVs are a nice bridge uh, technology and help consumers learn how to work at EV, how to work with plugging in, and, and how to deal with that while still having the, having that safety net of having a gas engine for when the battery dies. One question I have for both Carl and Chris here is without getting super political and getting into the weeds in that area, I, I'd like to, I'd like to ask, you know, how much of this issue is politicians kind of not really understanding the industry and sort of grandstanding and putting a tight deadline in because they think it sounds good and helping get reelected. And how much of it is politicians and policymakers putting a tight deadline in because we all know that automakers might, if not pushed, drag their feet a little bit. So there's a whole carrot and stick thing when it comes to regulation. And when it comes to regulation, there's also, there's actual honest, good faith efforts to make a change in the market. And there are people who are just saying things that sound good in front of a paper quarter. So kind of how much of it is the latter? How much of it is the former? You go, Chris, you start. Well, one thing to think about is one of the most vocal voices collectively over the uh, the shift to EVs lately have been, or for the last year or two, really, have been dealers. Mm-hmm. And most of these dealers are small business people with, you know, one or two franchises, maybe larger franchises. I, I don't necessarily see Penske or somebody like that making, you know, as much of a proclamation. Uh, but these are the businesses that are electing our, or that are, funding a lot of these politicians. So I'm sure that there will be some more voices heard from these dealerships that don't want to jump as quickly into the EV revolution as the government will. And we're going to see, you know, there's going to be uh, pushback. Again, the dealer pushback will lead to a dealer retraction of funding, as it were, uh, I, I just I see it's going to be a natural thing that uh, dealerships, those business people that are funding the politicians that are making the laws, they will make the change for them. Carl, do you have any thoughts on uh, on the shift or the? Let me not, not shift to EVs. That's the wrong phrase, but on this sort of failure of this disconnect is what the word I'm looking for. Disconnect between policy and, and the reality. Absolutely. I mean, and I think what Chris said is is a great way to think about this, too, because a lot of people forget that. Um, you know, trust me, I'm not going to give you a, a song and dance about, you know, getting out the violins for dealers because uh, they've got they, they've got plenty of uh, uh, of things to celebrate in a, in a general sense. But what you do have to keep in mind with dealers is that they're kind of the ones they're kind of the reality check in this situation. As, as Chris said, you can have politicians say how many cars we want to sell. And you can have dealer, or you can have manufacturers even produce all those cars. But at the end of the day, the bridge between the car being made and a consumer parking it in their garage is what the dealer, and that's where literally the buck and the sale stops. And so dealers are the ones who get shoveled these cars, whether they want them or not, half the time, and then have to figure out what to do with them once they're on their lot. And they have to buy these cars, pay for these cars, pay for storage of the cars, maintenance, depending on how long they take to sell. And they're literally, you could say, the ones left holding the bag uh, if a car is uh, being produced at a rate that is not sustainable by market uh, demand. So I think that's a great way to think about it is that the dealers will be a big factor in readjusting 
the politicians' uh, demands and expectations because they're going to point out the reality of whether or not they can sell these cars at the rate that the politicians want them to be sold at. The other thing I would throw in real quick, too, is there is undeniably a kind of beyond realistic transitional rate uh, kind of a, uh, you know, hey, we're going to tell a story because we think it's a great story. And, and you guys, again, maybe I'm being a little too cynical, um, but but I look at the brands that have most aggressively said, we're going all electric. And, you know, let's look at some of the brands that have said that. Cadillac, Jaguar, Mini. Now, let's overlay that with some brands that have struggled the most in sales and market share over the last, uh, last five <laughs> I years. see where this is going. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I don't see Chevrolet or Ford or Ram saying, we're going all electric by 2030. Why? Because those are the brands that make all the way. Jeep, not saying that, you know, because these are the brands that are selling robustly and making a lot of profit for their parent companies. And for some reason, those brands aren't making claims about how quickly they're going to be all electric. Hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think to your point about dealers playing into it, I think it's also the regular consumer. The biggest, this is my personal opinion and one I'm going to hammer on until things change the biggest holdup to electric vehicle adoption, well, to me, there's three big holdups. One is that most EVs have a higher MSRP, even with tax incentives, than, yeah, than gas and hybrid cars. That's just the reality. Two, I think range is still an issue. There's a few exceptions, but most vehicles are not getting not quite at 300 miles of range. Uh, and I think once, to me, that's the magic number. Once you get more EVs over 300, people will be a little more willing to to buy them, especially if they can charge at home. and then that rolls into my third point, which I think the highest obstacle or the biggest obstacle to uh, EV adoption is charging and charging is still too slow. Too many chargers are still too broken and there's still not enough charging options for those who can't install one in a single family house. And again, as I was saying, you know, I think once, once those challenges to EV adoption are met, whether through the public sector or private sector or some combination, then possibly the, the, the deadlines we were talking about earlier uh, we'll, we'll be a little more realistic. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at on that. And on that note, speaking of uh, government, let's talk about something that's near and dear to every auto, every auto enthusiast's heart. And one of the few things in this world that unites liberals, conservatives, and libertarians, which is the government telling us how fast we should drive. So I don't think this will actually become a law just because it seems impractical and ridiculous, but there was a bill proposed in California last week uh, aiming to, how do you say this, aiming to keep vehicles from traveling more than 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. Now, again, I don't think it's going to come into fruition. I think it would be, there's a lot of practical reasons why you shouldn't govern people's cars in emergency situations, that sort of thing. Also, GPSs could fail and maybe, you know, you get the wrong speed limit to your GPS from the road mm-hmm. you're on. And also there's, the issue of if California does it, what about the other states in the cost of building cars for one state with different rules than the rest? So, Carl, Chris, I want to hear your thoughts on this. And, and first of all, do you think it will become a law? And second of all, I want to hear some arguments for or actually, let's rephrase that. I want to hear some arguments against it because I think most most of us would be against it. But if you are for it, I'd also like to hear that, too. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm so for it because I really do think mama government can almost always think better than the average citizen. Does that, does that sound genuine guys? Do you guys believe me? No, um, I can sense the sarcasm from halfway across the country. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's funny. If you want to just take everything else out except um, money, which usually is the smart way to figure out what's going to happen. Um, that's a lot of speeding ticket revenue that disappears from California's budget. So right there. And I hadn't the, even thought and, of that angle. Yeah, yeah. So that right there makes it hard for me to believe that uh, the rest of the politicians will sign on. They're going to look at speeding infractions, the uh, income raised from those, and they're going to say, yeah, yeah, we aren't uh, we aren't doing this. Um, I mean, now that would balance against saving lives. And we always know government's never going to prioritize money over saving lives. So honestly, maybe maybe it will pass. But um, uh, no more sarcasm being sensed from across the country, I'm hoping. Um, yeah, I just don't, I just don't see it passing for multiple reasons. Uh, but it's funny because when I saw this, all I could think to myself was, look, you guys are making it more and more difficult 
for a lot of consumers of varying uh, persuasions, I'll just say that, to not want to buy new cars. Okay. Like I was already, I just got a car. I just got a new car a week and a half ago. I haven't taken possession yet because now it's at the PPF shop. But when I was reading through the little like Sirius XM Guardian thing that came with it, and I said, I'm going to actually read this fine print. I ended up calling them and saying, yeah, cancel my subscription and cancel it for privacy reasons. Because if you just cancel it, they'll still track everything going on with the car. You have to specify when you tell them to cancel this for privacy reasons, use those terms so that they not only cancel it and not make you try to pay money after the spree period, but to not keep tracking you after you've canceled the thing. Uh, and so that's just one example of uh, the level of intrusiveness that I feel like is going on with modern connected car technology. We all want to think connected cars are great, you know, ways and navigation systems and Sirius XM radio and all that kind of stuff over there updates for when our cars are having problems. But there, as is always the case with uh, convenience uh, and security, there's also a cost to privacy and personal liberty. And this is just a great example of it. Chris, you're, you're uh... I, I don't know if you would still consider yourself a libertarian, but you've definitely exp expressed those views in the past sometimes with us, uh, as well as in, in print or on the website. Do you kind of have the same thoughts or you feel any different than Carl does? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I basically agree. Yes. My, my background, I have, I have been part of the libertarian party. I am not now just for, for clarity's sake. Uh, but I do believe in freedom. And this is government overreach at its worst. Uh, I, but yeah, it's not really practical to implement because it, we talked earlier about the price of uh, the price and value of used cars in the, our first segment. The average new car, or, excuse me, not the new car. The average car on the road right now is twelve and a half years old. If if the data that I'm seeing is right, and that, that's getting older. I've seen in several studies uh, based again, from the government, that the average car <laughs> is 12 and a half years old. So there's going to be, even if this comes in tomorrow, you can't buy a new car in California that will do over 10 miles over the speed limit. It's going to be 25 years minimum before those old cars that have been hoarded for their <laughs> speed ability will be off the roads. Give or take. That's, I mean, that's another good point, especially in California where cars can right. last a long time due to favorable weather. Uh, and I'm going to go back to Gen Z car guy's favorite band, uh, Rush. And they had a song in the very early 80s, Red Barchetta, based on a article from uh, the November 1973 Road and Track. It was a fiction, a dystopian fiction story about someone who was uh, saving their sports car. The, in, it, the article was an MGB, which is near and dear to my heart. And I'm an MG lover. <laughs> um, <clears throat> who saved their MG and was driving it against the law, against these safety cars that were enjoying themselves by bashing the older cars against, you know, killing people and bashing them against guardrails, things like that. Um, we're, slowly edging into a dystopian future that you know we imagined 50 years ago that could never happen um and i agree yeah there's going to be too much revenue that will be lost by local police departments i'm i grew up in a uh, just outside a small town that came to prominence in many, many car magazines, national newspapers. The town has actually been officially disbanded by the state of Ohio government, a town called New Rome, Ohio. I remember hearing about this. The, it was disbanded because it was, the town existed strictly as a speed trap. It was four blocks on uh, West Broad Street, several miles west of downtown Columbus, Ohio. And it existed strictly to pull over and you know get money out of drivers they uh they had a police force i think a 10 or 12 people for a town of maybe 50 and that's all they did was catch speeders hmm. and it was such a fraud 
uh, they were able to sustain that many police officers. And I could be wrong on those numbers, but it's it's a tiny town. And uh, there's a lot of revenue that could be lost from local municipalities just from speeding enforcement. Ohio's known for its aggressive uh, speeding enforcement. They, some say they have a, uh, a death penalty in Ohio for speeding, but it's... Uh, <laughs> I think that yeah. Brock, I think that's from Brock Yates, maybe the cannibal book. That sounds about right. I've traveled to about forty states out of the fifty, and I've not, Ohio and Virginia are the ones where you're really warned oh, to yeah. watch your speed. Um, yeah, those two. Now, Does, I, I will. Patrick George get arrested and yeah, I was going to say somebody, yes. somebody did go to jail. They didn't get the death penalty, but they went. They spent time behind bars they, because they spent yeah, a week in yeah. jail because of speed. Yeah. I think on a Camaro drive. Right, which is ridiculous. Um, yeah. Especially if you're, you know, it's one thing if you're intoxicated, but if you're sober, that's ridiculous. Um, well, it's a journalist. Yeah. You never know, really. But Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> true. It's true. But no, no, on a press launch with a PR person in the car, I, I'm sure he was fine. But um, yeah, no, I, I'm probably a little more liberal than most folks, but I also would agree with you guys that you know, just because you want to have safety on the roads, that's the other thing. That's my other problem with this particular proposed law is. I'm not sure it'll increase safety. So just because those of us who lean a little bit left politically are a little more open to government regulation, we don't like, we still don't like government overreach. We still like freedom. Mm-hmm. We still like to be able to do what we want. I think it's a misconception sometimes, but we you know, still want to be able to drive as fast as you want. And I also, well, within reason, of course, you know, you don't want to be doing 130 in a school zone or anything, but um, I also don't know if it's going to increase safety because a lot of, Yes, we do know basic physics. The harder, the faster you're going, the harder a collision is going to hurt. It, the quick, the longer it's going to take you to stop and to avoid a collision. We all understand basic physics. I think that that's not exactly um, controversial. But there are situations where, if you're driving too slow, that's just as dangerous as driving too fast, right? I think you know, driving 80 miles an hour on a controlled access freeway with walls on either side to keep wildlife from crossing the road keep deer from crossing the road is a little different than driving 40 and 25 in a, in, a, in a residential neighborhood. So I think context matters when it comes to speed. I think, I think where you are and, and where you're doing it and all that sort of thing is um, a big part of this. And also, like I said, at the outset, the inability to go faster than 10 over, is going to limit some people in emergencies. Someone's hurt and needs to get to the hospital quickly. Uh someone's chasing you down in a road rage incident and you want to get away from them. I know, I know those kinds of things are, are outliers and they're weird and they're rare, but they do happen. And can we program know. a Konami code like up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. What, yeah. You know, can I override my speed limit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I still have that memorized to be honest with you, but you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's what I think it is, is a particular politician who, who's concerned he may or may not be actually concerned about safety but either way i feel like he's grandstanding or he's just taking the wrong approach in order to get safer roads and and, you know there are a lot of um collisions at slower speeds but people it's people who run stop signs run red lights don't understand how an intersection works and speed isn't always a factor then of course a lot of times it's not speed it's intoxication we were joking about it a minute ago but there are still people who drink too much and drive and so um I think, you know, we we all want to see fewer road fatalities. And I, I don't want to see, I'm not advocating that people just go as fast as they want or that people drive, you know, insane, insanely high speeds, especially in, in urban and suburban areas that are busy and densely populated. But I just think this is too much. I think it's, it's, it's trying to solve a problem with a, I don't know what the expression is. This isn't exactly everything looks like a nail when you've got a hammer, but it's, Something like it's like almost like using a bomb to kill a to kill a roach or something. You know, it's it's way too much. Uh, way too, it's like I don't know, dynamiting the river to, to catch a fish. I'm I'm struggling to come up with an analogy here, but <laughs> it's definitely something that just seems like government overreach, as Carl said, and and it just seems silly. Um, and it's also an invasion of privacy. And if you're using your GPS to track your location and, and the, the speed limits, and again, as I said at the outset. Okay, we've all been in test cars now that they can show you in the dash the speed limit, and sometimes they beep at you if you're speeding. I've been in a few test cars now that know where a speed camera is, a red light camera, and they warn you. That's nice, but sometimes they're wrong. I've had it a few times where they've been off by 5 miles an hour or 10 miles an hour, or the speed limit switches, and it's a little too slow to switch. 
So you also run into practical issues with the technology as well. So I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't think this will pass. And um, it's still, even though I don't think it's going to pass, I think it's one of those things that's pretty much going to outrage almost everybody. <laughs> so good job, Mr. Uh, Scott Wiener. And that's that's his actual last name. I'm not making that up. I'm not making a joke. I'm not trying to call him a wimp. He really is Scott Wiener. So I, I really think that, you know, he, he's probably going to get a lot of backlash for this and uh, maybe a bad choice on his part. And so with that, we're going to segue into into something a little bit different. Instead of getting outraged at the government, we're going to think back and go back in time. All of us in this podcast today are old enough to remember. I'm not going to give away any ages here, but we're all enough to all all old enough to remember certain beloved automotive brands that are now gone and are unlikely to ever come back. Although one brand scout is coming back as a EV only brand at some point in the near future. But we wanted to talk about, and I wanted to pick Carl and Chris's brain, especially about brands that they miss brands you grew up with brands that were shuttered for whatever reason, whether it was poor sales or part of the bankruptcy uh, proceedings that happened in, in Detroit for two of the automakers about 15 years ago. So Carl and Chris, I have my brand in mind, and it won't surprise you when you hear it, but which brand or brands do you miss, whether it's Plymouth, Oldsmobile, Mercury, Pontiac, or something even older than that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, for me, it's pretty easy because they both start with P. So uh, I grew up uh, a muscle car guy and primarily a Mopar guy, and my first, well, my first car was a uh, uh, drive trainless Dodge Coronet 500, like 1967, mm. that I had visions of turning into this really grand thing. Then I got a 68 Charger RT that was a high option car, by the way, that had a seized engine, severely rusted uh, quarter panels and no title, but we pulled it out of a junkyard uh, for about $200. And it freaks me out because it was still a complete car with the drive, original drivetrain and it was still a very highly optioned car. And I ended up parting that thing out. But the first car I bought, that was the second car I got. My third car, I actually bought it running and I kept it and it didn't, it didn't end up just going by the wayside like the other two, was a 69 Plymouth GTX with a 444 mm-hmm. speed. And then I had a 70 Plymouth GTX and I put 50,000 miles and drove that car for, let's see, 86 to 2010. So I had that car for 24 years and I put 50,000 miles on it. It was my daily driver off and on for uh, over two decades. Uh, and I still consider the 71 Plymouth Cuda, one of the coolest looking cars ever made. So I'm a big fan of Plymouth and I miss, I miss the coolness of Plymouth. And of course it was always great that the brand had already lost a lot of its cool factor. And then all of a sudden this thing called a Prowler came along decades later and kind of (laughs) injected cool back into Plymouth. So certainly a brand that had its moments in history. And, uh, and I remember fondly the other brand that I could argue is even more of a travesty because Plymouth had its hits and misses over its generation, over its existence. But this brand had a lot of cool cars and uh, Pontiac. And we all know that Pontiac only went away because there was something had to die. And Buick was seen as a much more promising brand in China during the restructuring of uh, GM. Uh, If you'd have asked a hundred people, car people or not on the street of the U.S., in 2008, we're killing either Buick or Pontiac, which one goes, all three of us and anyone listening probably knows what the answer would have overwhelmingly been between those two brands. But uh, Pontiac didn't have China potential like Buick did. So Pontiac died and Buick lived, sadly. So uh, yeah, whether you're talking Smokey and the Bandit or uh, Tulane Blacktop or a million other uh, uh, cool examples of uh, GTOs and Firebirds and honestly, even like Fieros, mid-engine Fieros, and other cool stuff that we've made over the course of the history. And not to mention the tie to John DeLorean. I mean, come on, how can we not think Pontiac wasn't cool and John DeLorean there? And then Jim Wagers, you know, who was the genius behind a lot of the marketing for the muscle car era. So those are my two brands I'd love to see come back, but I'm sure they never will. Well, I'm going to go out of left field here. I've written about my love for Oldsmobile before, uh, and we can go down memory lane with Oldsmobile. I could probably do a whole podcast on that alone. Um, But I'm going to go a little out of left field. Isuzu. Isuzu still, yeah. And it still exists as a commercial truck vehicle, commercial truck manufacturer here. But I really loved the old Isuzu Impulse. 
that the uh, the first generation, which was distantly related of all things to the Chevy Chevette, uh, rear wheel drive, uh, front engine, sporty, decent handling, weird styling. Uh, the second generation, the iMark, which had the the styling by Lotus or not styling, handling by Lotus. Suspension me. suspension tuning by Lotus. I remember that suspension badge. Tuning. On the back. Yes, there we go. The badge on the back and on the flanks and all that. Um, that engine went into the first generation Lotus Elan. Uh, I, one of those popped up on Facebook Marketplace recently, and I got daydreaming briefly. Um, it, they made some unusual cars, and they weren't crazy expensive. They were just basic cars that did the job well. Uh, their marketing with David Leisure, Joe Isuzu, was was fun. <laughs> Um, and it's just, it's a shame. They became just another sub brand that, you know, was of, of GM ultimately and went by the wayside like Geo. I mean, Geo and Suzu and Suzuki. That's another one. Suzuki. Oh goodness. Yeah. yeah. Saab. Suzuki. Saab. Saab. Yes. You know, yes. it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a good sign when you become part of GM. That's not, that's usually a, the first <laughs> It's usually the first step toward uh, toward uh, the graveyard, but uh, just I'm just I'm just saying. History, oh, I know. History's hard yeah. to deny. <laughs> it sure it sure has seemed like that in recent years. I will um, I will bring mine up. Mine is going to be one of the same ones that Carl had, and that is not Plymouth. It is Pontiac. I uh, I'm too young to really have fond memories of Plymouth. I, I remember you know the GLH and stuff like that, but Pontiac I definitely remember. Um, you know, growing up they had the Fieros. I was old enough to remember those and of course the the trans ams and when i was in high school the firebirds and then uh you know the brand kind of lost its way in the aughts uh with with really crappy brand and enge- badge engineered excuse me badge engineered cars like the g3 and the g6 and, and it was also the, the the era of way too much body cladding when it came to the grand prix and the grand am but they they had started to kind of find their footing again right before the the bankruptcies and the bailouts i thought you know, um, the G8 was was wonderful, and mm-hmm. they had yep. some other stuff in the pipeline that was going to be really good, or at least interesting. They had that, I forget what they were going to call it. I want to say it was the G8 GT. It was like an El Camino kind of thing that they had shown. They they built concepts. I remember seeing one at an event. Well, because uh, it was Australia. It was an Australian U. Yeah, it was the, the Holden U. Yeah. yeah, and they were they were obviously as as you say they were pulling from Holden a lot, and I think the G8 was based in the Commodore, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but. Um, so they had they it was a little bit it was a little easier than starting from scratch and, and fixing the problems they were able to to pull from Holden, which was doing which at the time was doing really well, but yeah, I I, I do have a bias here in the interest of full disclosure. It wasn't I didn't work there because I love the brand. I worked there because I needed a job. But I did work at a Pontiac dealership. It was part of a larger group. It was Buick Pontiac GMC, and the same owner also owned a Nissan and store. I don't believe he had Infinity. I think it was just Nissan uh, down the block, about a mile away. Um, and I started at Nissan, was moved over to Pontiac. That's a long story. We can do another podcast. But spent I didn't work there super long, just a few months. And I went back to Nissan and then kind of moved on from there. But uh, I didn't sell enough service to – I wore up my welcome, but I wasn't selling enough stuff. Let's put, let's put it that way. But, um, yeah, when I was at Pontiac, I definitely remember, you know, the, Stol- the Solstice was in their car. That was kind of fun. The GTO, which, again, another Holden-based vehicle. And I – you know, didn't quite work in this market for a few reasons. There are minor things like the switches being in weird, being in spots that the window switches, I think, were in the center of the dash, which unless you're driving a Wrangler is a little bit weird to Americans. But the GTO was a fun car to drive and should have sold more than it did. I, I don't know why it didn't sell better. So I thought Pontiac had gone, had kind of like found its way out of the wilderness after, you know, when I was growing up, Pontiac was pretty, was pretty strong. It was pretty great. The Bonneville was awesome. Everyone loved the Bonneville. And then they, they kind of, Lost their way through the '90s and into the aughts, and then they uh, they really kind of were just getting their feet pointed in the right direction when everything went south with the with the economy, with the larger economy, with General Motors. And as Carl said, and it's completely true, if Buick hadn't been so popular in China, Pontiac may have survived. And it's, it's still, I still wrap my head around. I still struggle. Nothing against Buick, and I grew up in a family that had several Buicks, but. I still struggle a little bit to get my head around the idea of 
entry luxury versus luxury at this point in time. There, there was a time when it made sense when Chevy was your mainstream brand and Pontiac was your kind of sporty, but still mainstream brand. And then Buick and Oldsmobile were both sort of entry, but also mid. And then Cadillac was the top of the top, right? There was a hierarchy that made sense. And by the time that Pontiac went under, it was already kind of hard to differentiate Buick from Cadillac. And then Buick was also putting out a lot of badge engineered models as well. And what, you know, what was, why would you want to buy a Buick and spend extra money over a Chevy in some cases? So GM was just kind of, GM was basically cannibalizing their own brands in some ways. And then, uh, yeah, like you guys said, they, the whole Saab and Isuzu sagas also didn't really work out well either. So long story short, before I start rambling on too long here, in 2007, 2008, I think GM's leadership had finally seen that, hey, we, we need to keep, if we're going to make Pontiac stronger, we need to make it a performance version of Chevy and, and kind of give it some, give, give enthusiasts a reason to shop here. And then right as they did that, everything went south and Buick's popularity in China and China being a huge market, that was the end of that. So I do, I definitely miss Pontiac. I don't necessarily miss Oldsmobile. I kind of do. And I know it's a running joke inside the truth about cars internally. We, we all have uh, an affection for Oldsmobile, especially Matthew Guy, our, our stuff we use expert. But um, I don't miss Mercury that much. I don't miss Plymouth a ton. And maybe because I was only in my 20s when they went under. Maybe I was just a little too young to to really uh, appreciate them. But Pontiac, I definitely, definitely do miss. And with that, we're going to wrap it up this week. Carl, I appreciate your time. Chris, as well. So just as a reminder, Carl Brower is the executive analyst with IC Cars, and he or iccars.com, I should say. And he was generous enough with his time to talk about used cars as well as Porsches and EV goals, uh, or rather Porsche saying we can't meet those goals, uh, as well as brands we miss and, of course, a law that might limit speeds in California. And Chris Tun is one of our car reviewers at The Truth About Cars as well. Gentlemen, thank you for your time, and we appreciate you being on. Absolutely. Glad to have been on and uh, fun topics to discuss with uh, with fellow car people. Yeah, thanks so much, Tim. Thanks, Carl. Yep. And, remind, and just as a reminder, before we close it out here, we are brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love have transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. For brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber and not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only and exclusion supply. Again, thank you for listening to the Truth About Cars podcast. You can find us at ttac.com, ttac.com, or the Truth About Cars. You can find Carl at iccars.com. That's the letter I, the word C as in vision. So I-S-E-E, cars.com. And you can find Chris uh, at ttac.com as well. Have a good weekend, everybody. 